just want to begin this morning by thanking the pastoral team and Pastor Wes especially for the chance to speak here once more. Um, speaking here is such a meaningful thing for me. And when I think of churches and places and people that have had an impact in my life, Houghton is at the top of the list. And this church is at the very center of, of the Houghton experience for me. So there's no me without this place and without you. And so to be asked to speak here is a real honor for me. I also uh, threw on my Facebook last night to say, you know, if you are the type who doesn't normally go to church but are curious about the kind of things I do with my life, tune in on the streaming. So if you're doing that, hello. I'm glad that you are doing that today. And uh, I hope that uh, getting to see a little bit of what our church is like has been interesting for you. The passage that Goody read for us is one of the most memorable ones uh, in all of Scripture, and it has to me maybe one of the most important turns of a phrase that we see in the whole Bible. And that's what we see in verse 15, speaking the truth in love. There's a lot to the phrase, speaking the truth in love. And in some ways we could say this is the very goal of the church, to, to, to take the, the truth of Jesus Christ, the truth of the gospel, to the world with God's love. And yet, I think sometimes when we think about what that phrase means, speaking the truth in love, I think sometimes we assume a lot of things that are not really biblical. What do we mean when we say speaking the truth in love? I'll, I'll give you a few things that I've heard that people mean when they say speaking the truth in love. Sometimes when we say I'm speaking the truth in love, we mean I'm going to tell you something that's really inconvenient for you, but your life is going to be better if you accept it. And live accordingly. So I'm going to tell you anyway, even if you don't like hearing it. So if you have a roommate who smells horrible, for instance, not that this has ever happened to me. No, certainly not now. My, my roommate currently is the best smelling roommate I've ever had. But yeah. if one had a roommate that did not smell good, you could say to that person, sometimes we say speaking the truth in love is to say, hey, I'm just telling you the, telling you the truth. You stink, right? You need to take a shower. If you don't like hearing it, that's too bad. Right? That's tough cookies for you. You need a shower. It's loving for me to tell you you need a shower. People who think of speaking the truth in love like this often seem to like saying it a little too much. Don't you think? That kind of idea of, I've got something really inconvenient to tell you. It'll make your life better, though, and so I'll kind of glory in telling you this thing that you don't really want to hear. But that is something we mean sometimes when we say speaking the truth in love. But certainly it has to be more than that, don't you think? So sometimes maybe a, a step up from that, we think, I'm telling you the truth, but I'm telling you lovingly. I'm telling you kindly. So we think of this sometimes like as parents. There are things we have to say to our kids, but we, we recognize that they're not adults. They can't know this yet, and so we want to tell them kindly. Uh, so we might say, you know, now I, I don't know if you knew this, but sometimes you smell a bit off, right? You know, <laughs> and I care about you, and I thought you might like to know, and I know it's hard to hear, but, you know, it's probably better that you hear it from me than from someone else, right? So speaking the truth nicely, lovingly, still something that's inconvenient to hear, but at least we've been nice about it. That maybe is a step up from that first one. But I think we can still go a little higher, a little better. Maybe the next step up is to say, Speaking the truth in love means I'm telling you with pure motives. 
Now I think we're really getting closer to the truth. And it's very hard for us to do, really, to sort out our motives sometimes. I mean, it's, it's hard to know where my genuine concern for you, right, and my genuine concern for you not showering, turns into my own desire to have you not smell anymore, right? Right? It's sometimes hard to sort out what are our pure motives. But that idea that we could get to a place where it's really not about me, But it's about you and what I'm trying to do for you here. And so I'm really speaking on your benefit for your behalf, not not for my own benefit. And uh, again, this is really hard to do. Like when I think about the ways that I communicate with people, when I think about the ways I communicate with my own family, sometimes it's very hard for me to sort out when am I trying to solve a problem really for someone who would like to have a problem solved, and when am I trying to solve it so that my life gets more convenient. I mean, this is a very tricky thing in our lives. But I think we're getting a little closer to the truth when we say speaking the truth in love means speaking the truth with pure motives. It's really not about me right now. But but I want to say this morning, I think we can aim even higher. I think even if we got there, even if we got to the place where we were speaking the truth with pure motives, I don't think that encompasses everything that it means to speak the truth in love. Because the language of love is really strong language in Scripture. It's more than just kindness. It's more than just sensitivity. It's more than even purity of motive. Right? We ought to have all of those things with everybody. But, but love is bigger than this somehow. Love is harder than this. You know, it's, it strikes me sometimes when we're talking about speaking the truth in love. Sometimes we think, well, the truth is the hard part, right? And the love is kind of the thing that kind of softens it and balances it out. You know, I've got to tell you the hard truth, and that's sometimes unpleasant. But, but love is kind of God's way of softening the blow of the truth. We act like love is the easy part, and that the easy love and the hard truth just have to kind of balance out. But, but I don't think that's true. The hard part, I think, is the love. Right? I will be with you no matter what. I mean, we know. We know exactly what exasperates us or angers us about our political opponents. We know exactly what frustrates us about our ideological opponents. We know exactly what irritates us about the world that we live in. It's not hard to speak the truth. It's hard to create and sustain a relationship of love. Biblically speaking, love demands a lot more than truth. When Jesus came to earth to show us the heart of the Father, it was the love that cost him. If God had just wanted to show us the truth, he could have dropped a book called The Truth, right? But love demands embodiment and sacrifice and vulnerability and commitment and suffering. Telling the truth is the easiest thing in the world, but love is hard work. And so for us, speaking the truth in love has nothing to do with tone, nothing to do with being sweet, nothing to do with watering down with what we say in order to make it palatable. If I stand before you today and am perfectly honest and perfectly accurate in biblical content and interpretation, if I am perfectly sensitive and perfectly kind in telling you the truth, I have not necessarily spoken the truth in love. Because it seems to me that in the uh, the context of this passage, speaking the truth in love means speaking the truth in the context of a loving relationship. The overwhelming theme of Ephesians 4, as Goody read for us, is church unity. Paul begins the chapter by pleading for unity, by reminding people, hey, bear with each other in love, 
Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. Make every effort to practice the bonds of peace. And then he drives it home with these rhetorical flourishes like Paul does. He says, there's one body, one spirit, one hope of our calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Whatever Paul means when he says, speaking the truth in love, he he just is not saying, speak whatever's true and tough cookies if the people in your life can't handle it. Paul is concerned that a, a diverse church remember that it is one. That it is unified. That they worship a Savior who really meant it when he prayed that we would be one as he and the Father were one. Then Paul goes on and he talks about different kinds of roles that people have to play in the church. There are apostles, there are prophets, there are evangelists, pastors, teachers. And and this is where we'd we'd expect Paul to say, and these guys have the truth. And sometimes they're going to say things you don't like, but you need to listen to them. Because they have the truth and they're here to help. But that's not what he says. He says, God has given them these roles. Why? For building up the body of Christ until all of us come to the unity of the faith. And the knowledge of the Son of God. God did not entrust leaders with knowledge to pass on to other people. And if they don't get it, well, tough cookies for them, right? No, God gave leaders so that we all can grow, including the leaders, says Paul, in the context of a loving relationship. Speaking the truth in love, he says, we must grow up. Even Paul says, doesn't say, you must grow up. He says, we must grow up in every way. Paul presumes that everyone has some growing to do. So speaking the truth in love, whatever it means, is about creating loving relationships that are strong enough to withstand the weight of truth as we share it with each other. Everything that Paul says here is about the unity of the body of Christ. Truth emerges from a loving relationship. Truth serves building a loving relationship. The question for us today is, are we the kind of community that has such thick bonds of relationship that telling the truth is possible? Are we the kind of community that has such thick bonds of relationship that telling the truth is possible? What would that mean for us today? If there was no such thing as hit-and-run evangelism or hit-and-run discipleship, but, but if relationships and love are vital to being able to speak the truth as it must be spoken, what does that mean? Well, it means that building relationships, building friendships, is actually awfully important gospel work. Right? Building relationships and friendships is not just something we do because we have to do something in order to get to the gospel. No, building friendships and relationships is gospel work. Not just friendships that we use to, like, reel people in so we can share the gospel with them. Not just friendships for the sake of building a a diverse friend base so you can brag to others about your wide group of friends. It means building friendships so that the truth can flourish between you as friends. i got to say, sometimes we act like there are people in the church who are more relational. You know, like, nice people. And then there are people in the church who are truth-tellers. And, and you know, like, I mean, those people, I mean, they might be a little, you know, relationally hinky, you know. They might might take a little translating. 
But we need them too. We need truth tellers and we need relational people. And I'm thinking, why on earth do we split these things up? Why do we split truth and love up as if they were opposites and needed balancing? Why do we act like you can't be good at both? Why on earth do we demean loving people by acting as if they're incapable of telling the truth? Why do we demean truth-tellers by acting as if they're incapable of having loving relationships and being kind? Why would we separate truth and love when it is precisely the combination of the two that made Jesus the Savior? When it is precisely the combination of the two that makes the church the church? Jesus knows and demonstrates that building relationships is gospel work, creating and sustaining a framework of love so that the truth can be told is gospel work. And so my question today is, what are you doing to build that framework of love? I mean, what, what, if, you, what if you made friends with someone of the opposite political party as you, and I promise they're here in this church, right? <laughs> no matter your persuasion, there's someone of the opposite. What if you made friends with someone of the opposite political persuasion as you, not just so that you could share your truth with them, but so that you both could find your way to the truth together? What if you made friends with a non-Christian, not just so you could evangelize them, but because you recognized you also had a lot to learn from them? What if you recognize that whatever your mission field is, it isn't just your place to share the gospel, but your place to create and enjoy loving relationships with others so that the truth can flourish, where people can learn from you and you can learn from them? Well, that's good, right? I mean, that's, that's a great sermon, if I do say so myself. But that's easy in the pulpit, and that's hard when you put flesh and bone on it. Isn't it? I mean, it sounds easy on paper, it sounds pious in a sermon, but it's hard work. I grew up during the height of the AIDS epidemic. So when I was a teenager, we were daily seeing sights in the news, in our health class at school, about the incurable disease that disproportionately impacted gay people. And it turned into something of a crisis for the church. You were here, many of you, and I don't know how it was handled here, but, but in many cases, Christian parents turned away from their gay children, wouldn't visit them when they were sick. Some Christian churches, fearing the contagion of the disease and fearing theological imprecision, took public stands that people with HIV would not be welcome in their churches. But the gay community showed remarkable love and care for each other, cleaning up vomit at sickbeds, keeping vigil as they, each of them died. Finding a way, hear me, this is why this is hard, finding a way to honor that which is good and even Christ-like in those we disagree with is absolutely essential to speaking the truth in love. Is it any wonder that the people who identify as gay are not interested in our truth, no matter how kindly we're saying it? Even as I say this today, I'm afraid you're going to think I'm being soft, or I'm afraid that you think I'm going to be compromising, and I'm not. There is a profound misunderstanding, I believe, a misunderstanding of intimacy and our bodies and our sexuality that that comes with LGBT behavior. But, But I will tell you this, I wish we all visited each other in the hospital when we were sick, as well as that community did in the 1980s. I pastored a church for a lot of years, and do you know how many times I was the only one to visit a parishioner in the hospital? 
And if I didn't do it, how angry others would feel with me for neglecting my professional duty. Am I saying that we should change our position on human sexuality? No, no. And I hope none of you pin that on me. But I am saying without, without a relationship of mutual love, without an ability to honor the hospitality and love that community showed each other in an hour of need, without an ability to acknowledge you cared for the sick and we did not, there's no need or reason for that community ever to listen to us. Hear me clearly. I will never, ever compromise the truth about human sexuality as revealed in the Bible and in the church. But I will also not obscure the truth by refusing to enter into relationship with people who disagree with me. And that is what it is. If I stand at a distance from relationships and say, I have the truth, I don't. If I think I can stand outside a relationship with you and lob the truth in like a truth grenade, it will not get heard. The truth can't be the truth if it's not in a relationship. The truth can't be the truth if it is discarnate. If we try to keep ourselves pure and holy by resisting relationships, we obscure the truth by keeping it outside of the only context where the truth can flourish, a loving relationship. But hear me clearly, if I can push us a little deeper yet. It's not just about our relationship with outsiders. I think it's also about our relationships with each other. It's not only true, I think, that we have failed to build loving relationships with people outside our faith. But I think it's even more tragically true that we too easily neglect genuine, real relationship with each other. And remember, what I've tried to say today is that if relationship fails, the truth fails. Again, don't hear me being soft on truth. I think of it like um, I'm a serial fan. Tricks. Lucky charms. I mean, the worse the serial, the better, you know? So... Uh, and sometimes when Jill and I are traveling and I see, you know, if we're shopping in a store or in a museum and I see like a big bowl, I look at Jill and I say, you know what I'm thinking, right? She's like, yep. <laughs> I say, cereal, you know, <laughs> even if the bowl's like a big vat, you know, because I just love cereal. I could eat cereal. All... Right. I love cereal, but I need a bowl to hold the cereal in. Right. And so the fact is, when I'm talking about the importance today of relationships, Think of it as the bowl and cereal is the truth. I'm saying there's no way of passing, you know, if you spill tricks all over the ground, I'm not going to eat them, right? And you can think, I gave him a cereal. No, you haven't given me cereal if you throw it all over the ground and hope I'll pick it up and eat dirty cereal. You need to give it to me in something I can understand. And this is what I'm saying. Relationships are the only way that truth gets passed from person to person. The fact that sometimes our relationships with each other fail means that sometimes we have nothing to say when the world needs us to speak. And I think that's very true, especially in a church like ours, like I tried to say, where people have different political persuasions and different beliefs, when we have a diversity of thought and opinion on different issues. Sometimes the lack of relationship that we have with each other keeps us from pursuing truth together in meaningful ways. I think of two particular people right now, and if if I'm guessing right... Most of you are going to connect with one of these examples and probably not connect with the other one of these examples. Most of you will think, good on him for bringing that one up and bad on him for bringing that one up. But you might feel differently about the two examples I'll bring up. I think of two people. One is named Dewan Guillory. One is named Charlie Gard. Dewan Guillory was a young black man who was killed by a white police officer last week in Louisiana. Louisiana. 
He was shot four times in the back. The police officer claims it was in the context of a struggle with Dewan and his girlfriend. His girlfriend disagrees. She has a different scenario of what happened. Dewan's mother is a, was a police officer herself for many years in the small town where they live. Dewan Guillory. Charlie Gard appears to be different. Charlie is an 11-month-old British boy who suffers from a rare disease which is considered incurable. Charlie's parents want to bring him to America for an experimental treatment, and they've raised money to do that. But Charlie's British doctors believe that the case is hopeless and that the treatments might cause him pain. And so they want to pull the plug on Charlie's ventilator and presumably allow him to die with dignity, is their language. And they're ready to do that, but there's been kind of an internet firestorm of protest, and so nothing has been done to this point, and we'll see where it goes from there. These are two very complicated situations. Very tricky. And, of course, they're made more tricky by the fact that we don't have all the details of any of those situations, right? And and likely we never will. And if I asked you what our church thinks about either of those situations, we'd say, that's complicated, right? That's complicated. I mean, we've probably got people here who think all sorts of different things about them. And, And yet, we need to recognize that a failure to say anything has consequences too, right? It's not just that I want us to have a party line and say this out loud and be this loud political church, but a failure to say anything also has consequences. When we fail to say anything, we tell grieving and fighting families that we can't decide what to feel about what you're feeling. When we don't have anything to say, we signal to a world outside that, that compared with the influence of the mass media, our faith in Jesus doesn't really have much say in all in how we make moral decisions. But mostly when we don't say anything, it reveals to the world that we don't trust each other enough to figure out what to say. And if speaking the truth in love means speaking the truth in the context of a loving relationship, then what we're saying is our loving relationship with each other is not strong enough to talk about complicated, world-shaking realities. The bowl's not big enough to hold the heavy cereal we need to talk about. This cannot be for the people of God. This cannot be for the people that Paul is writing to. This cannot be for us. For many of our Black brothers and sisters in the faith, Dewan Guillory's story fits into a disturbing pattern where they feel disposable in America. And you might not have heard that name before, but I promise you that 65 miles north of us today, right now, in Buffalo and in Rochester, that name is being uttered in African-American churches. And a pastor is reminding someone that they are somebody. You are not a statistic. You are not disposable. You are a person uniquely beloved by God with dignity and purpose. And, and they're listening for what we will say to them. Now, please hear me clearly. I'm not saying you have to think what I think about it. But I'm saying we have to do something more than just say, eh, it's complicated. It won't do for our black brothers and sisters, and you can understand why. I mean, if your son died and a fellow Christian said, well, it's kind of complicated, right? If that's what we said to each other at funerals, instead of how can I help? You'd, you'd understand, right? It won't do for Charlie Gard's parents. You know, if my son's life is hanging in the balance, I'm not particularly interested in Christians who say, what a fascinating case. Christians have many different perspectives on what should be done. 
In this very complicated, polarizing time, we can't just simply say, agree to disagree. Because that kind of unity is sentimental and it is paper thin and it is meaningless to victims of injustice. In complicated times, the church needs to learn to talk about complicated things. So we can move forward with something that looks like gospel unity. Something like what Paul has said. And to talk about complicated things, we need genuine, robust, loving, accountable relationships. Not, 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 why can't you agree with me right now? But what can we do to build the kinds of relationships that make meaningful agreement possible? I think what troubled me about last November in this little town was not who voted for who or who won the election. What troubled me was that I had no sense that the church mattered at all in how all of us as individuals made our decisions. I mean, most of us felt weird about the last election, like it was really difficult in a way that not every election has been. But I did not have a single conversation with a fellow believer where I said anything like, I don't know what to do. What are you going to do? <laughs> what do you think? Who, who are you going to vote for? What do you think we should do? Instead, what I saw mostly was that we prayed that we'd have wisdom. And so we all went back to our house and consulted our usual sources of wisdom. We read the Bible with our own biases. We went into our prayer closet with our own biases. We turned on the news sources that we most prefer with their own biases. And then we all voted the way we felt most uh, led to vote. And then we were shocked and disappointed that not everybody agreed with us. What did we expect? I saw very little of the people of God seeking the Spirit together in relationships of mutual accountability. And you see, a Christianity in which the people of God are not doing that, are not seeking the Spirit together, that's exactly the kind of Christianity the world wants. Because in that kind of Christianity, we're fragmented individuals rather than members of a body in which Christ is the head. Uh, that kind of Christianity is susceptible to naked appeals to self-interest as long as it's couched in piety. That kind of Christianity is easily divided, easily conquered. The, the kind of Christianity where we don't trust enough uh, to talk to each other. That's the kind of Christianity that the world will have a field day with because they know they can always dictate the terms. To us. The world will always dictate what we should be fearful of. The world will always dictate right and wrong. And if we can't talk with each other, we will go right along marching to their drum. And so you'll forgive the families of Dewan Guillory and Charlie Gard, but you can understand why they want us to say more than, oh, it's tricky. It's complicated. You can understand why parents like that look to the body of Christ to provide incarnate love, robust support, listening, empathy, presence. Both of the stories remind me of my favorite verse in Scripture, Romans 8, 19. Creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. Do you catch it? Sometimes we don't catch things at the end of a sermon. Creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. Creation is not just waiting for God to show up like a bolt out of the blue. Creation is waiting for you and for me, the children of God, the church, to be what we were made to be. And if our relationships with each other suffer, we can never do that. If our relationships with each other are so fragile, they can't support the mutual pursuit of truth, 
They'll never be able to proclaim that truth with power in a world that is gasping for truth like a fish on a dock. If you're like most people, you're going to go home and you're going to talk about the sermon with a spouse or a family member or a friend. And in that conversation, you will talk about the things you liked and the things that troubled you. Some of you might say, I really like that point he made about Dewan Guillory, but that point about Charlie Gard, why is he bringing that up in church? Some of you might do the opposite and say, that point about Charlie Gard, obviously a gospel issue. Why is he talking about Dewan Guillory? You might dislike something else I've said. I don't know what you think, but the point is, whatever you do to decompress about the sermon, you're going to risk some conversation that you probably won't risk with me. Maybe you will. I don't know. Maybe my email will be flooded with ideas that you have for how the sermon could have been better. But most often, we decompress about sermons with people that we know a little better and trust a little more. Why? Because there's a relationship there. There's love and commitment. And what I'm asking this morning is why can't a relationship of love and trust exist between all of us? So that not only in every sermon, but maybe even in every conversation... We could have an opportunity for renewed minds and changed hearts. But if we can't do that, if we don't build that relationship of love, if we don't build that relational framework, we can never get there. So let me suggest something revolutionary to close the sermon, and then I will take my seat. If you want to see the body of Christ proclaim the truth with power... If you want to see Houghton Wesleyan Church become all it can be, if you want to see your workplace bear the light of God to the world with every ounce of its energy, then maybe it doesn't start with an argument. Maybe it doesn't start with a a pristine and bloodless presentation of the truth. Maybe it doesn't mean going online and fishing out the best apologetic arguments that can overwhelm your enemies inside the church and outside Maybe if you want to become that kind of church, it starts this way. Putting the phone down and looking someone in the eye. You want to build relational frameworks? Say, right now you're more important to me than this glowing box in my hand. Maybe it starts by inviting someone to dinner. Maybe maybe it starts by committing to public worship. In a society right now that thinks about worship primarily and what you get out of it, maybe you say, no, these church and these people are important enough for me that I'm going to Act like they're a priority until they are a priority for me. Maybe it starts by celebrating the little town where you live instead of complaining about what it doesn't have. Maybe it starts by attending Memorial Day parades and music recitals and birthday parties and potluck suppers. Maybe it starts by rejecting upward mobility, by by rejecting the lie that consumption brings happiness, by acknowledging that I'm not really me on my own, that I'm not my best until the Spirit has guided me in a community. Maybe it starts by building our communities so much that we learn to trust each other to pursue truth together rather than think we have to discover it on our own and reveal it to our communities. Maybe it starts by being more in love with each other so that speaking the truth in love is natural. And speaking the truth in love, we can grow up in every way into him who is the head, who is Christ. Would you pray with me? God, when we think about proclaiming your truth in a broken world that needs to hear the truth, 
most of us don't feel up to that task. Certainly not on our own. There's so much that we don't know. There's so much uh, that we can't sort out. There's so much that we can't know on our own. And we're very susceptible to a world which has an agenda for each of us individually. We're susceptible to a world that commands our loyalties in so many ways. But fortunately, God, you didn't ask us to do this alone. You called us together into this body. And so, God, we pray for the unity of this body. In difficult and polarizing times where the world looks to us for leadership, God, help us to be people who have something to say that's meaningful. Not that we can all agree every time on every jot and tittle of the truth, but help us to be a people who incarnate so much love in our relationships with each other that people see the truth here in the way that we speak, in the way that we listen, in the life that we build together. God, let this be true in this little body. And today, if we can be mystical and lift our eyes even wider, we pray for your church around the world. We know, God, that there's a way in which your church is living and moving and active, and we're privileged to be just a tiny part of it. We pray you'll make us sensitive to your body around the world. Guide us into your truth until that great day when we gather around your table, the marriage supper of the Lamb, and sing praises to you forever. Make our fellowship on this earth a foretaste of that. And we ask this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.